Welcome to another episode of Live at the Family Barbecue. I'm here with a special guest, someone I've been emailing for the last couple of years. We finally connected in person again, so it's good to have him here. I'm going to have him introduce himself because uh, he's done plenty of great work. i got plenty of questions. And uh, yeah, we'll start with that. But Mr. I don't want to get the last name wrong. See, because I've been saying Luckhart. Is it Leckhart? It's Leckhart. Leckhart. Okay, so yeah. Mr. Steve Leckhart. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Man, that's all good. That's all good. How's everything going? Everything's great. Good, good, good. So you got a lot going on right now, man, but I want them to uh, get a little bit of your background first before we jump into it. Obviously, you just did the What's My Name documentary about Muhammad Ali, but just give us a little background about what got you into filmmaking, period, so we can kind of know who the person is behind the yeah. pen and pad and the lens and all of that. Sure, yeah, so I started my career as a magazine journalist uh, probably about 17 years ago. Started writing about music and bands and then decided I wanted to write about more complicated subjects. Started writing about technology, kind of after Napster, before Facebook, kind of in that little period. Mm -hmm. And then was writing for magazines for years as a reporter. Never really thought about documentary film as a career for me. Um, and then accidentally, a story I wrote wound up on the desk of a doc producer in L.A. Mm -hmm. He had just won an Oscar for a documentary called Undefeated, mm -hmm. which is a high school football movie. Yeah. And uh, they emailed me about you know whether or not I thought my story would make for a good documentary. Um, the short of it is that the story never got turned into a documentary. We tried, but in meeting those people and talking to the you know especially this one producer. Um, he introduced the idea to me that you know you can write documentaries. You don't have to be a cinematographer. You don't have to film it. You don't even have to necessarily be a director. You can kind of work in conjunction between the editor and the director to write the story and to sort of shape the film and be another creative brain where that's that's effectively your focus. Um, and so that was seven years ago, and now I've written two feature documentaries. Uh, I've written two documentary series, including What's My Name? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm developing things for myself to direct. Nice, man, that's cool. So talk to us a little bit about that process, because that's always been interesting to me, like I guess writing a documentary. Is it you more so, I know it's not, I guess is it line for line, or is it like just sequences that you want to talk about? Like what's that kind of process of, like, because that was super interesting with What's My Name, because he literally told the story it wasn't like people talking today. It was like him in real time yeah. throughout the whole thing. Yeah. So What's My Name is kind of special um, because, as you mentioned, it's him telling his own story. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's no longer with us. Um, and so we weren't able to interview him. We weren't able to interview other people to get all the pieces. And so it's a, it's a slightly different process. But in general, writing a documentary... My job is to sit down with the director and talk to her or him about their vision. Mm -hmm. And once I have a sense of what questions they want to answer or even specifically what kind of story they want to tell or even thoughts they might have about the structure, mm -hmm. I will go off and spend my own time doing my own research, thinking about it, you know, sort of beating my head against the wall um, and then starting to put pen to paper or, you know, fingers to a keyboard. And then I'll write uh, what's called a treatment. Mm -hmm. And the treatment can any, be anywhere from one to two pages to, in the case of Muhammad Ali, it was 10,000 words. 
and I write it as if it was a novel. I write it like a narrative mm-hmm. so that you jump in and it's a scene and a moment and then you start to get a sense of the characters and there's dialogue and then it's structured the way you would try to structure the movie. Right. We then take that piece of paper uh, or pages and then I'll sit down with the director. They'll sort of give me notes. You know, Usually they're very positive and they think that I've done a decent job of figuring out the shape of the thing. Um, but it's not a finished script. It's, a, it's more of a roadmap. Mm-hmm. And then we'll sit down with the editor or editors and then we'll talk about how to basically take that structure and distill it into note cards on a wall. So those are scene cards and we'll just write on Sharpie and in the case of What's My Name, we had a card on the wall that said What's My Name. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was that card was going to be the scene where we had the Ernie Terrell fight with Ali, um, where he has changed his name and Terrell refuses to call him Muhammad Ali. And beyond the fight itself, it was about creating all the run-up to the fight and then afterwards the aftermath and anything that we could. So that became a scene card. Mm-hmm. We had probably 30 or 40 note cards on the wall for the two movies, for part one and part two. Um, And then my job becomes the next phase, which is as we start to sort of find material and hang it on those cards in the edit. So the editor or editors will sit there, they'll pull in footage. Uh, If there's interviews, we'll look through the interviews together. They'll start workshopping and roughing out material based on the cards. And then my job becomes giving them notes Going back into transcripts, I'll look at my own footage that I find, um, and then in some cases I'll help our archival producers find new materials. Mm -hmm. And so my job becomes a bit of helping to guide the editor or editors, Mm -hmm. and then working between them and the director oftentimes to help refine the story. And then in the case of Muhammad Ali, you know, I had transcripts of a ton of interviews. Mm -hmm. And so I would go back in, and then I would sit there with the editor and say, hey, can we create an, uh, you know, a monologue about race in America and try to put it here? Mm-hmm. And then we'd go and we'd look through all these transcripts and pull bites from 1971, 1965, and then we would literally architect it over pieces of the film. So, it sounds pretty involved, but <laughs> basically the short of it is, is, is my job is to create the piece of paper, which is a roadmap. Right. And then my job is to sort of make corrections to the roadmap as we go mm-hmm. and then work and very collaborate very closely with the editor and the director on just shaping and refining the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a uh, creator, does it ever get uh, difficult, I guess, when you're in that room and I guess people want to take your ideas out or kind of shape your ideas? Like, How does that go for you? No, it's better. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so the hardest thing about being a writer when I only did magazines was sitting in a room by myself yeah, yeah. and just beating my head against the wall. And anybody, if you're a musician, an artist, a writer, mm-hmm. you've got that experience. It's a very lonely place to be. Uh, it's a really difficult place to be. And I've, over time, as I spent like a decade as a writer, I got to know the sense that eventually you'll find your way and you'll, you know, the first stab is never going to be great. Mm-hmm. It takes time to get better and better and better. And you need good notes from people. What I like is that now my job is to create this thing that is intentionally a rough draft. Right. It's not a finished screenplay. Gotcha. It's, hey, here's what I think this should be. And then it becomes, okay, well, together we're going to make this better. And what we see on screen will be miles better than what I created. Mm -hmm. But there are some things that in that piece of paper 
translate to the screen perfectly. Mm. Um, so in my in my mind, it's never hard uh, to work with other people. I, I actually love it. Right. Yeah. Right. The collaborative nature of filmmaking is much better than I think what just being a writer is. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the way magazines work, you 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 know, I lived in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, and when I lived in San Francisco, I wrote for magazines in New York. Ah, which okay. meant I wrote stories in my house. I'd email them to New York. Sometimes they'd get they'd call me on the phone. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, they just email me back with a bunch of notes, and that was it. And then I'd, <laughs> I'd rewrite it, and then they would just mail me a copy of the magazine. And then I'd be like, "Well, oh, that that's a weird photo. Why'd they choose that photo?" Mm-hmm. I'm very disconnected from everything else. Right, right, right. And with filmmaking graphics, music, the shape of the thing, the story, the sound design, I get to have a hand in at least being at the table to talk about all those things. Right. So for me, it's actually really fun to be um, more connected to every step of the process, whereas as a writer, you typically get sidelined. Yeah, so. I knew you had a spirit about you, man. You live in San Francisco. I'm from the Bay Area, so that, that nice. all makes sense. It all you, makes sense. Where are you from? So my mom lived in San Francisco. My dad was in Oakland, so I got Perfect. the whole experience of everything. So how long were y'all there? 11 years. Oh, what? Did you yeah. go for college or was it after? Or? I went for grad school. Well, where at? Yeah, I went to Berkeley. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, man. But I lived in the city because my wife worked at uh, LACMA. <sighs> or no, SFMOMA. Okay, Sorry. so that's so crazy. One of my uh, best friends, uh, his mom is now at the, uh, what is it, uh, Moab. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 right down the street. Right down the street, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's crazy, man. No, I loved it up there. Um, I'm from down here originally, but I moved up there um, for grad school, but really with the idea of staying. Mm-hmm. And so if it wasn't for kind of making documentaries, I don't think I would have moved back here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm originally from here, and... You know, to be honest, the weather's better. Right. Uh, so I got to ask you the age old question, the one I get all the time. Which one do you like better? Well, which one do you like better? Sweet. I always, I can't ever pick one. So I said, you know, as an adult, nightlife and just always having something to do, I kind of like yeah. LA more. But growing up, I really enjoyed the Bay Area, especially when I was growing up. It was extremely cultured and like yeah. it was a lot more tight knit. There's like a lot of homegrown people there, so. Well, that's the point, right? So the the Bay Area that I moved to 14 years ago Mm -hmm. is gone. Right. The Bay Area that you grew up with, you know, years ago is gone. Right. And I don't mean to sound like fatalistic and sad and doom and gloomy, but, you know, the L.A. I grew up with is gone. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. L.A. is way different. Culver City is way different. You know, Santa Monica is different. There yeah. wasn't a train when I grew up here. That's a fact. Um, you had to have a car. There was no Uber, no Lyft. And the Bay Area is that way too because it's gotten even more expensive and pushing families out. Yeah. All my friends who started having kids, a lot of the times they were okay with one kid, but once they had the second kid, they couldn't afford to live there and they yeah. left. And, you know, any city that kind of pushes away families becomes kind of not not necessarily as like, I think culture is a good way to put it, but also just not family oriented. Right, right, you know? right. So, so the Bay Area is, I miss it, but what I miss doesn't exist. Yeah, and that's, that's why everybody asked me, like, you gonna move back? And I was like, I don't think so, man. I think yeah. I'm just, I don't think it's much of a difference now. Like, <laughs> Oakland, Oakland's dramatic, man. Yeah. I, mean, I remember going and hanging out there in 2005, mm-hmm. 2006, 2007, and that was, 
a decade's gone by and it's just like, you know, startups moving in. And, yeah. You know, and on the one hand, it's kind of nice to see storefronts that were vacant now being, you know, turned into actual businesses. Mm-hmm. But how many of those businesses are local businesses versus just, you know, um, chain stores and yeah. people from San Francisco who run businesses as opposed to local people? Yeah. So it's hard to see that, but. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, so I gotta ask you this too then, since we were on that, because I think I told you uh, my dad actually worked at Tower Records. Oh, right. I think that was how me and you got to start right. talking That's the first right. time. He worked at Tower Records. I forgot which one it was he worked at in San Francisco. I think it was one like near Stonestown. I know it was one downtown. Somewhere. There was one on Broadway. Yeah, I think that's the one he was at. He, yeah. That's the one he was at. So when did you kind of start getting interested into that? Because yeah. that was super interesting to me. I still got to watch that one, by the way. But just the Tower Records, like, the whole experience of walking into a store and having vinyls and cassettes. And, you know, granted, like, I love, like, Apple Music and Tidal is convenient. Yeah. But to be able to walk in there and just be able to pick up something from Ray Charles to Sting and like yeah. really feel that in your hand and really get to look at the artwork, like I miss that. So what was it that made you do that documentary? Yeah, well, that's my first film. Mm-hmm. And so again, back to the accident. I don't even know if it's an accident. It's just more like it wasn't part of my plan, mm-hmm. which is I wrote this story, it wound up on the desk of a guy who wanted to turn it into a movie. That never happened, but he introduced me to a first-time doc director who was making a doc about Tower Records. Mm. So because I had worked in music and I'd covered the music industry, and then because I was interested in technology, I was a weird person in that I had sort of, I had experience in the transition of physical media to digital media. And I was a magazine writer, so I had kind of a little bit of a perfect skill set for this project. Mm -hmm. So I met the director and his producer, and they had been filming for a few years, and the thought was, well, maybe you can come in and watch our footage and tell us how to make this thing, Mm -hmm. or not how to make it, but more so how to structure it, figure out the story, and where do we go, and what do we do, and what's the shape of the thing. And I had never worked on a doc before, so I kind of just did what I thought made sense. Right. And I could tell from watching their interviews that there was a there was a deeper story, and that if I was doing the interviews, I would ask further questions. And so one of the first things I said is, "Can I meet the founder of Tower Records? I'd like mm-hmm. to meet him." So they drove me up to Sacramento, and we met him. And I found this guy to be charming and insightful and funny and interesting. And the more and more I listened to him, the more I realized, wait a second, Tower Records was this little homegrown business, right. you know, created in a drugstore in Sacramento. Right. It wasn't the big chain that I remember growing up. Right. Because growing up here in LA, I used to go to the one, there was one in Westwood, and there was one uh, on Sunset Boulevard, which mm. is the really quite famous one in LA. Right. And then when I moved to San Francisco, um, I remember going to the one on Broadway. Oh, yeah. And I used to, I went to undergrad in Santa Cruz. I would drive all the way up to go to that one or mm-hmm. go to Amoeba. And it was a huge part of my life, but I didn't realize that it had started in a drugstore and that all the people who worked there mm-hmm. was early on were college dropouts, high school dropouts, mm-hmm. and they helped grow this billion dollar record chain. Mm-hmm. So that kind of really made me excited that not only could we make a film that was nostalgic for this moment in time when you could go in and hold the records but also talk to clerks who could tell you about no 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 
forget that. Come down this way. I got something for you. Right. Have you right, ever heard right. of this? Right. You know, because that's the part of the magic of being in a physical store. Mm. So when I learned and figured out that not only could you do something that was about that nostalgia, mm. but that there was an amazing unknown sort of untold story about the people that were behind this thing. Right. And that they caught like lightning in a bottle just at the right moment. Right. Where you know, vinyl was going like this, and then CDs came along and it right. went even higher. Right. And they just hit every format at the perfect time yeah. until digital. Digital, right. So, it, you know, that was such a dramatic rise and such a dramatic fall yeah. that it was the best combination, which is, you know, a great story, great characters, and then personally for me, something I cared about. Mm. Um, so making that movie was was a huge experience. It was my first time really on a proper documentary film set. Yeah. You know, I got to sit there and and, and watch how they shot with multiple cameras and mm -hmm. really learn a lot. Um, and then you know got to watch an editor take all the materials and start to assemble it. Um, so it was a super special experience, and I'm still very close with the director and the producer, and um, and I'm actually. One of those producers, uh, actually two of the producers on the Tower documentary made the Ali film. Mm, wow. So I wouldn't have probably gotten to Ali if it wasn't for Tower. Wow. And then I wouldn't have gotten Tower if it wasn't for just writing magazine stories. Right. So I'm an interesting case where I can thread the needle between my entire career from this one little moment. Yeah, I think that's important too because you got to be versatile, like so versatile today in the age that we in. My question, do you think that Tower Records could have been like Spotify or something like that had they been around the right tech heads? I, so I don't want to spoil the documentary too much, although, you know, spoiler, it's gone. Right, <laughs> I'm watching <laughs> There is a point in the movie where you'll see they had one of the first online stores where they were selling CDs digitally, mm -hmm. and they also sold, uh, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, they were selling digital MP3s as well from the store, but it just wasn't... You know, they were not set up for free. They were set up selling it. And mm -hmm. so they were, in a way, they were late to the party, but they were early. Right. Because iTunes was years later. Right. And they hadn't yet created, there was no iPod. Right. There wasn't a, a set number, like, okay, a song is 99 cents, mm -hmm. which was a huge deal at the right, time. Right, right. You were competing with free. Mm -hmm. Right? So yeah. how do you compete with a bunch of you know, basically children, teenagers, and college kids right. who have a laptop and have, you know, LimeWire or Napster, Napster right. and they're just dumping it for free. How are you going to get them to go pay like 99 cents for, right. you know, a song that right. they can get for free? Right. And so Tower had this business, and although they were selling some stuff mm -hmm. off the website, it wasn't able to scale. Yeah. So at that point in time, they were they were sort of doomed. But the biggest thing about what they did that was great is they owned so much incredible real estate mm -hmm. that had they had they sort of forecasted enough, they could have sold properties and kept a few of the big stores. Right. Like they right, could have right. kept San Francisco's the one location, LA the one location. Um, but they, in their sort of you know. Uh, meteoric rise and then their sort of sense of global domination and not seeing kind of the writing on the wall in terms of digital mm -hmm. they they borrowed a bunch of money 
from banks in order to keep expanding. Mm -hmm. And they built stores in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. They built stores in Buenos Aires. Oh, wow. They started building uh, all these stores all over the country, all over the world, in markets where it couldn't support it. So, you know, in Buenos Aires, the economy was tanking and they were trying to sell $12 CDs. Mm -hmm. So just from a business standpoint, it didn't make sense. But had they sort of pared themselves down, they could have kept a handful of stores and theoretically, yes, they could have kept enough cash going that if they saw a Spotify, they could have either partnered or, or, you know, acquired them. But hindsight, you know. Yeah, always 2020. Yeah. It's just so interesting to see that, like you said, whether it's, you know, Blockbuster or Polaroid cameras, you know, like if it just would have been a little tweet, you know, they might have been on the whole other side of the thing. So that's 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 very interesting. Well, do you want me to really spoil something for you for the, the film? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, Tower still exists. How many do they have? In Japan. Ah. They're all over Japan. What? Yeah, all over. And there's a, there's a six or seven story one in Shibuya. That's crazy. It's massive. It's a huge record store. That's crazy. Yeah. So when they when they were hitting the skids financially, mm-hmm. they sold off Japan to a Japanese uh, company. And so Japan still has these stores. And in Japan, collecting physical media and collecting things is still part of the culture. Right. And I think we swung back the other way because right. now vinyl is popular again. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. saw the other day on Instagram, someone posted a photo of a record store or a record stand with vinyl mm. in uh, JFK in mm. the airport, which is wild. It's you know, like huge. in the last 10 years, suddenly we care again about having and owning physical media and teenagers especially are into it. Japan never lost that. So they still sell CDs. That's so crazy. Yeah. yeah, I even saw a promotion the other day where um, it was something on Instagram too. It was talking about like any artist that's coming out or you know create merchandise for themselves, you can get vinyls made for your music now. Yeah. So that's now even becoming a selling point for like newer artists, like special vinyl CDs. Yeah, so. the, the only thing you got to be careful with when you buy the vinyl is that they've not just converted the digital directly to the vinyl. Got you. Because then it's, if you put headphones on, it's not gonna sound as good as what a typical vinyl record used mm-hmm. to be where it's made, and it's basically pressed from the masters gotcha. versus pressed from the digital. Gotcha. You know, that's some like, yeah. you know, that's some music nerd shit. Yeah, right now, that's, yeah. that's dope though. <laughs> that's something you need to know. No, it's true. Yeah, that's yeah. something you need to know. Ask your dad, he'll tell you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was gonna swing back to the Muhammad Ali. So I had we had just talked about it, but you know it's been a lot of books and movies and other uh, documentaries and things like that about Muhammad Ali. But what uh, made this one like special for you or stuck out yeah. as something that you really wanted to be a part of? Yeah, well I think when they came to me in twenty, I think it was twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. It was spring of twenty sixteen, so it was before Ali had passed away. He oh, passed okay. away in June. Um, I, you know, they basically came to me and said, we've got two parts, so it'll be two full movies. Mm. And that was really exciting to me because, you know, there have been a number of documentaries made, mm-hmm. you know, one including When We Were Kings, which is arguably one of the best documentaries made, right? not just on Ali, but right. in general. Just in general, right. And, uh, you know, so I sort of already knew from 
from one sort of perspective, which is like we had our work cut out for us and that a lot of films have been made about him, including that one. Um, but I knew that with two films that we had three hours, which is a much bigger canvas. Right. And that meant that we could we could be more ambitious in how much of his life we covered right. or how much of his career and how much time. You know, When We Were Kings is just, it's just centered around um, Kinshasa and the, the rumble in the jungle. Right. It's just that one fight. And you live and breathe that fight and it's amazing. Right. But then the other aspect, which our director, you know, basically proposed over uh, a meeting one day, he said, well, I want him to tell his own story. Can we do that? Mm. And um, I don't think he was really asking if we could do it because I think he knew we could do it. Right. <laughs> but he did know that that was a big shift for us because when we were kings, and I, I don't want to mean to sound like I'm sliding the movie because the movie is amazing. Right. But when we were kings cuts away from footage of Ali to interview writers and people and journalists who were there. Right. And they start to storytell around it. Mm -hmm. And it takes on this mythos because these other people are building him up and they're also explaining and telling stories about things you, you couldn't see because they weren't filmed. Mm -hmm. But I knew that as soon as our director had this idea to have Ali tell the story, that meant that you would never cut to present day. You'd never see another person on screen telling you what they saw or what they thought. You would only live with Ali telling his story. And so I sort of knew that that would be different enough and it would make the film like incredibly distinct. Um, and then it was just a question of like taking two years to actually make it happen. Mm. Um, and then that's like a whole other story. Right, 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 right. So was there anything that you learned about uh, Ali like during the process that like surprised you or like really oh, blew yeah. you away? Like what, what was it? Uh, I'll tell you the short one, which is, which is, I love this and it didn't make the movie because I don't even know how we could do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the late 70s, early 1980s, Ali grew a mustache. Mm. You Google it, you can see photos of him with this great mustache. And he grew this mustache because I learned um, his father, when he was a kid, always had a mustache. Mm -hmm. And so by the late 70s, he sort of wanted to own this idea that now I'm really a man. I'm, I'm a father. I'm in my mid to late 30s. Right. And so I'm going to grow a mustache like my dad. And during this time, he called himself Dark Gable. Mm. instead of Clark Gable, who had a mustache. Oh, wow. So I, I love that because I just sort of felt like him having, just nicknaming himself is just, I mean, it's like him calling himself uh, the Louisville Lip or calling himself the greatest. It was like him sort of branding himself. Right. So I always thought that was fun. But I would say the, the most interesting thing I learned about him, which is in the movie, is that after he loses his comeback fight to Frazier, mm. Rather than go back to Miami and continue training, which is where he'd been training, right. he decided to buy uh, several acres of raw woods up in uh, rural Pennsylvania. And he created his Fighter's Heaven, which is his training camp in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania. He cut down trees himself with an ax. He built, helped build these cabins, his own personal cabin where he slept and, and uh, and read books late at night, had no electricity, and it had no uh, indoor plumbing. All the water was pumped into the kitchen through a ground, a ground you know, well. Um, and that's where he trained for the rest of his career. And I, when I realized that it was him as a country boy, he was he raised a country boy, right. 
lived as a country boy even after he was successful. So I mean, you can see like he has this fancy car, but it's parked in the in like a you know in right. the dirt next to a, a log cabin. And I just thought there was like something so romantic about that. And I I sort of realized that no one had really shown that in any movie that he created this place for himself. Yeah. That hadn't been done. Yeah. And so I realized, oh, perfect, I'm gonna structure part one and part two around this fight, because mm -hmm. it was him having his comeback moment, mm -hmm. and it's the first loss of his career. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of a natural fit that that's where you would then open part two, would mm -hmm. be, you know, where are we in the woods, and why are we here? Right. And, then it was just a quick matter of going out and finding all the footage to help sell it. But right. we found incredible black and white footage of him, you know, walking around camp and showing people the camp. Right. We found footage of him um, on Dick Cabot, you know, showing Dick Cabot his cabin. Yeah. So overall, it was like, I think that place is super special. I think it was special to him. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think the public knows that, you know, Ali used to train in the wilderness. You know? I have no idea. When I seen that, like, because I always thought about it too, like, you know, him coming back from that fight, like, what was that whole process like, you know, and then to kind of see him take a step away from, like, everything you know because Miami is like this glorious you know you got the beach and the cars and everybody is just so shiny you know to go into the woods and take it almost break it down or break himself down to a point of like this is like him reinventing himself almost yeah. um, that's what I really looked at it as and um, I just thought it was so much allegory in that just for like life in general you know and he really lived it like yeah. I don't know, man. You did a great job. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, a great job. it's true. Like that wasn't, you know, when he went to Miami, he was there because he was chasing, you know, I mean, he went to the Fifth Street gym mm -hmm. because he wanted to train there. Right. And uh, this place was him setting up his own camp. Mm -hmm. It was him not chasing somebody else to help him. It was him basically finding himself somewhere that he created. Right. And then because of that, there were people that came into his orbit. And this is the part that I that always really struck me was that we found out that Larry Holmes came and started training there when he was like 18, 19 years old. Mm. And that he trained with him for years. And then he was even there in Kinshasa training with him as his sparring partner. Wow. And then, you know, as you probably saw in part two, Larry Holmes and he have this very difficult fight later in Ollie's career when he was, you know, pretty much past his prime. Right. And, you know, it when you go back to this moment where Larry Holmes comes in to Fighter 7 right. at age 19 and starts training him to prepare him for all these great victories. Right. Because um, you could argue that Ali was great, but he also needed to train to be great. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so... Larry Holmes was directly responsible for helping Ali prepare for all these seminal fights. Mm -hmm. You know, all the, all the, I think, Frazier two, Frazier three, um, all of those fights uh, were were a part of, of of Larry's training with him at this special place at this camp. And the only reason Larry even got to that camp was that he grew up in rural Pennsylvania, like forty minutes away. Mm -hmm. So he just happened to be a you know a young up and coming boxer hadn't fought professionally right. got brought to camp one day champ saw something in him that he liked right. they started sparring and then the rest is history um, and it wouldn't have happened had he not been into your lake mm -hmm. I think that would have happened so that's amazing man yeah but his, his 
Ali's story is a gift. Yeah, it is. You know? It is. It's an inspiration, really. You yeah. Know, to see that somebody can really, because those are two guys. It's crazy. Like those two are two connect, so connected to just Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Uh, because Malcolm X is somebody who was like a pimp, a drug dealer, like everything. And, you know, again, he reinvented himself to come into like this great leader that, you know, all of us like idolize now. And uh, for Muhammad Ali to really speak the way he spoke, you know, it was amazing to see that those two personalities were so tightly knit, man. So it's yeah. Yeah. two amazing lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I wanted to ask you, what was the most difficult part about the whole experience of bringing the film to life? Um, for me, it was probably trusting that we had done enough work to find everything we could. Mm. Because he's the most you know, photographed, videoed, filmed, and recorded human being on the planet, mm. you could argue. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe nowadays not. I mean, I'm sure someone like a Justin Bieber, there's more, you know, because <laughs> he's filming himself, or even right. Kanye has been filmed a lot more. Right, right. These people who've grown up with cameras around them. Right, right. But, you know, starting in 1960, the moment that Ali, you know, uh, wins a gold medal, you know, he spent the next, I think it's like 50 something years of his life in the, you know, in the limelight being recorded, mm. filmed. And so what we, we knew, especially when we made the turn into making an archival-only film, I didn't, want, I didn't want to leave any scraps on the table. Right. And so then it was a question of just making tons of phone calls, doing a ton of research. I mean, we went... So I spoke to, I spoke to uh, an author who was telling me about... Um, I'm trying to remember... Oh, no. So we were, we were trying to figure out if there were old journalists who had recorded any interviews with him back in like the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a handful of magazine journalists, including a guy who wrote for Esquire. I found there was another guy who had written for Sports Illustrated. Well, guy for Esquire is still alive. He um, ultimately, I think, didn't have any tapes that he was able to share with us, but I'm happy I called. Mm -hmm. And then with the Sports Illustrated writer, he had passed away, mm -hmm. but we found out that he donated all of his materials to this Oregon uh, University library. Um, and then we went and found that there were these reel-to-reel -reel tapes that no one had heard in however many years, and we had them digitized. And the whole movie opens, that first black screen where yeah. you hear him talking and it says reporter. Mm -hmm. That's from one of those tapes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that came about because I didn't want to leave any scraps on the table. And I wanted to know that we had done our due diligence to go out there and try to find everything we could. Yeah. And so that was, I think, the hardest thing was just saying, well, at what point do you stop? Right, Because right. You're, you're sort of searching. You're not, it's like searching for a needle in a haystack mm -hmm. where you don't even know if there's a needle. Right. So yeah. I'd say that was the hardest part. Mm, that's a good one. So I wanted you to say too, so how many hours do you think you put into this whole process of making this documentary? Because I always, <laughs> I work with kids and they're like, you know, I want to do this, I want to do this. I was like, all right, you know, it's tough work, but yeah. it's doable, absolutely yeah. doable. But you know, you got to put your head down and you got work to get it. But how many hours guesstimate do you think you put into bringing one, the Muhammad Ali documentary yeah. to life? Yeah, and then yeah. just hours total. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, Ali might be slightly easier. 
So I started writing and researching in April of 2016. Okay. And I think we finished the film, or at least my part of the film was done, I want to say in January of 2019. Wow. So that's like almost three years, like 2.75 years, like two and And three quarters. Um, But that's not a full time two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So just to write the treatment was a few months Mm -hmm. and I probably, you know, just to write that thing sitting there probably took a month, like five days a week for a month or so. and writing is weird because he's not like anything creative. Like you could go in a studio as a musician and, and record a song in a day that's a hit and it's amazing. Right. Or you could sit there for six months trying to write a record and get right. nowhere. Right. So in my case, I, it's hard to calculate, but over the course of two and a half years or almost three years, it was probably like 60% of my working time. Mm. You know, at some point it was like 100%. Once we got it, once we got the thing on its feet, then my job became a little bit less. Like I'd come in once a week to check stuff out. Um, So again, you know, my job is really to collaborate with other people, and then if things are tracking and making sense, or I don't have anything to add, then my job gets easier. Yeah, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And on that film, we were really fortunate. Um, I worked with Jake Krasinski, who's an amazing editor and uh, is, a, is a dear friend. And, you know, Jake would, he would take the thing and run with it. Mm-hmm. And then if he got stuck, he'd call me or text me or I'd come in and we'd work together. Yeah. But if he wasn't stuck and he was working, then, you know, I could, I could kind of coast, which was nice. And, right, right, right. So I wanted to ask you too, so how was it, because obviously, Muhammad Ali is probably the most influential athlete ever. He's up there, if not the greatest. What was it like, or how did you feel having probably the most influential athlete today, uh, which is probably LeBron James, yeah. connecting with the project? Well, it, yeah, I mean, that was a match made in heaven because I think, you know, how many people probably go around pitching, I want to do a doc about a famous person, right? right? Like. Yeah, lots of people can have that idea and right. think it's a great idea. Um, I think what distinguished this project even before I came to it is mm-hmm. that we had LeBron saying he wanted to make it with his company and Maverick Carter, yeah. and we had Antoine Fuqua, who is you know one of the, the the most solid narrative feature movie directors on the planet, right. who also has done movies on boxing. Southpaw's an amazing movie. Ah, that's one of my favorites. It's I incredible. And so to have this narrative director who also is a boxer mm. with LeBron wanting to make the thing, that I think it it set the tone very clearly that the standards for what this could be were going to be exceptionally high. Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, my understanding is HBO was just like, yes, we're mm-hmm. in. Um, and so then I came on board right. uh, and I sort of inherited, you know, this really high bar and stuff. Right. <laughs> right. No pressure. Yeah. But just so you know, so, LeBron, Antoine Fuqua, yeah. and it's on Muhammad Ali. So yeah, my, my job was my job was not to mess it up. Right. right. Um, but I took it really seriously, and I, you know, in writing, I was in the middle of researching and writing when Ali passed. Yeah. And um, I couldn't talk about the project because it hadn't been announced. Right. And so I reached out 
Um, when he passed away, they announced there was going to be a huge memorial at the Yum Center in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was like a you know a little section on media for the press. Right. And so I reached out to the publicity department and just sort of said, hey, I'm a magazine writer and I'm, I would like to cover the event and right. come. And somehow they, they said fine. Yeah. And so I got myself a media pass and I got to go to the Yum Center and, and be there for his memorial. And I was already planning a trip to Louisville to walk around and right. see his hometown. I'd never been. Right, right. And I wanted to see you know the house where he grew up and I wanted to go to the Ali Center, which is there. Right. And so I just basically expedited doing my trip around his memorial. Um, but sitting in that room with, you know, I, I don't know how many people there, it must have been at least 15 or 20,000. Mm. It's a huge room. And there were people there that, you know, were in their 80s. So mm. the country that they grew up in was a very different country than what I grew up in. And he, he chose to have, and you can see this online, he chose to have a figure from every major religion including Native American. Right, yeah, culture. yeah, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. And it was, everything was done exactly how Ali wanted it. And I was just incredibly moved by the experience. And so for me, from the start of this thing, I never felt overwhelmed by the fact that, you know, there were these heavy hitters attached. Right. And I never felt overwhelmed that it was Ali. Right. I sort of felt like, I just felt really lucky that I inherited this incredible story. Right. And I felt that I had a duty to work hard, but I also sort of felt like his story, like I said, is such a gift that, um, you know, it could fall down in a lot of ways, but it wasn't going to fall down on my lack of trying or caring. Um, And then uh, for me, the parallels of his story to what we've been seeing in the country here, especially the last three, four years, Mm -hmm. um, that made making his film, making his story and making our film, I I think it made it feel so relevant. That um, it, the sense of importance outweighed any any um, maybe uh, fear I might have had that we messed it up. Mm. Yeah. So how do you think he's influenced the world? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, you know, I think the simplest way to put it is that he led by example, mm. and so. You know, he changed his name when he changed his religion, and he and he um, had unfortunately his entire career and life derailed for a number of years. For three years, he was couldn't box, couldn't make money in this country, mm. uh, couldn't leave the country. Was mm. stuck. They took right. his passport, and what happened to him was proven to be very unfair and proven to be illegal because Mm -hmm. it got all the way to the Supreme Court and he won the case. That he did not have to go fight a war he did not believe in purely because America felt he should. And so, you know, justice was served, but not served in the sense that he had this three-year period when he was in his prime where he should have been boxing and winning and making money and living living ostensibly an okay life. And this is a young man at the time who didn't drink, didn't do drugs, right. was married, right. you know, was a family man, right. and had a clean image. And right. so that's a travesty. So all a long way of saying, this is a man who could have been bitter mm-hmm. and resentful and angry, and you never really saw that in him. Right. He, 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 even when he came back, he was very positive. He talked about wanting to make it, you know, wanting to help uh, especially poor people uh, in underserved communities. Um, and I think 
his sense of generosity, his generosity of spirit, his warmth, his kindness, his compassion, all of those things, his sincerity and all of that, right. that's super rare. And I feel like what he has taught the world is that like, if we're all just nice and cool to one another right. and we connect with other people as human beings and we're not just caught up in our own sort of stuff that we literally can make the world a better place by just the simple act of just being better. Mm. And I think that that's probably like the, the greatest lesson, um, at least he's taught me, right. you know, cause we all can kind of trip out on our own stuff or, you know, uh, be bothered by things that at the time are, you know, annoyances, but you know, for someone like him to go through what he went through and to still on the other end of that be a positive, warm human being, humorous, funny, charming, and he carried himself like that uh, for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to go through what he went through and still wind up in that is is just what a what a lesson. Perfect. It's a perfect way. Yeah. So you have three films that I seen. Let me know if it's some other ones, but I know yeah. it's All Things Must Pass. Uh, Silicon Cowboys, yep. and then What's My Name is the one that just came out, Muhammad Ali, the one we've been talking about. So my question for you is, what do compact computers, <laughs> Tower Records, yeah. and Muhammad Ali all have in common? Yeah, I, you're not the first person to <laughs> is the good one. Uh, so far, everything I've worked on has been about a big name uh, that if you Google it, there's Wikipedia pages right. and it's been covered in the media mm -hmm. and so it's a known entity. Right. And so I sort of see my job is to take this big known thing and to turn it inside out and to mm -hmm. find a way to make it seem fresh and new mm -hmm. and to tell you the things about it that you just didn't know. Right. So I think that's kind of been if I, if I had to draw a line through all of them, that's the line. So it's, it's take this big familiar thing and make it more intimate and personal and then find the thing that um, is surprising and unusual and then I hopefully string it together in such a way that you don't look at Muhammad Ali the same way, right. you don't think of Tower Records the same way, and this, you know, tech company that created the first portable computer effectively um, that is as much tied to this cell phone I'm holding in my hand right. that you have some understanding that that story and the people who did it is you know not where you would if you had to write a script it didn't play out the way you know you would you would architect it so for instance those people were in Texas mm. like who knew that computers were made in Texas right you know right um, and I think that alone was like oh Really? Like, right. there was a computer company in Texas that right. was worth a billion dollars and is gone? What right. happened? Right. You know? So I think, like, for, for everything, it's like, I had no idea that Tower Records was a... I knew it was a billion dollar chain, but I had no idea it was created in the drugstore. Mm. And uh, in the case of Ali, I knew a lot about him. I had no idea he had this, you know, 
deeply spiritual side that was also connected to living in the woods mm. and training, right. you know, and eating organic vegetables right. when there was no hyper-local organic movement, there right. was no Whole Foods, Whole Foods. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that's probably the line if I had to say between all of them. Um, at the end of the day, I just, I'm a curious person and, you know, you hand me, you hand me a topic, I'll go deep on it and find what I think is interesting. And hopefully I'm right. Right. Man, that's wonderful. So, well, we say that to say we want everybody to make sure they go see Silicon Cowboys. Where, where can we find that one at? Uh, it should be on Amazon and iTunes. Amazon and iTunes yeah. for sure. So, Silicon Cowboys. I saw uh, All Things Must Pass is on Amazon Prime. So, I got that one. So, I go watch that one there. Oh, and yeah. Then, What's My Name? Muhammad Ali, HBO. Uh, so, make sure you go check all those out. So, last question for you is... What's next, man? You've done a lot. You've yeah. worked in magazines and music, and now yeah. the documentary thing is going excellent. So, you know, what's next for you? Where do you see your trajectory going from here? Yeah. I mean, I, I tell stories, and I don't, I don't think that's going to change. Mm -hmm. I think the way in which I'll tell the story or the role on the project will change. Mm -hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of directing a series right now. Nice. Uh, it should be four parts, four hours. I can't, unfortunately, talk too deeply about what it is. No, it's all good. Uh, but I can tell you that it's, it's for Netflix. Okay. Uh, and I'm co-directing that one. So nice. I, you know, I'm still doing a lot of the same things I did before, mm -hmm. uh, but now I get to sit in the director's chair. Uh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's good. And having worked with such great directors, mm -hmm. people like Antoine, mm -hmm. Um, and to just sort of see how they, you know, sit down with an editor, to see how they, they handle meetings, to see them on set. Yeah. Uh, I've learned a ton. So, you know, now I've been a sparring partner and now, right. now it's time to <laughs> <Right. laughs> so for you to be the world champion. For we'll real, for real. Well, you're already the world champion, but we'll, you know, be adding to it. Add to the legacy. We'll see. Hopefully, I don't get knocked out in the first round. Nah, you'd be good. You'd be I think good, so. Man. But thank you so much, Steven, man. Can't wait. Hopefully, we can have you on again after the whole Netflix thing is done. And uh, yeah, just congratulations. Thank you for coming, man, and keep inspiring all of us. Thank you for having me. Man, absolutely. That was delightful. <laughs>